Lord God, we pray that you would help us to preach. We pray that you, Holy Spirit, would cause us to see Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, that you have revealed yourself in Jesus our Lord. And we call on your spirit now to cause us to see him. Amen. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation, literally name, Anama. You have the name of being alive, but you're dead. A dead church. You ever been to a, a dead church? Three years, or no, a bunch of years ago, Susan and I visited Westminster Abbey in, in London Impeccable music, magnificent words, and astounding boredom. We sat in the chancel, you know, up front where everybody could see. Three times during the sermon, Susan fell asleep. And I mean not just a little. I mean she totally fell asleep and fell over and hit her head on the sideboard next to where we were were sitting. Uh, This thud resounded through the entire cathedral three times. Oftentimes, the church I grew up in seemed dead. The sermons were usually boring. The preacher was my dad. But, but have you ever been to, you know, a really live church? You know what I mean? Exciting and growing and, and vital. After leaving my home church, we moved to California, and I had a job at Bel Air Presbyterian Church on top of the mountain. Uh, it was the president's church and full of movie stars and had a great name for being alive. After that, I took a position in Northern California, in Danville. Susan never fell asleep in church because uh, Rick, the pastor, was incredibly dynamic. He had published several books, was in high demand as a speaker nationwide, and, and he was really fun to be around. In 1991, he had just written a book on mentoring, and in the book, I was his chief example, his primary uh, disciple. I'm calling his name Rick. It wasn't actually Rick, but I was like known as like the little Rick of Danville. Awesome. Rick had a name. A great name for being alive, authentic, and passionate. Sometimes preaching, he would just break down weeping, and people would say, wow, the Holy Spirit is moving. Rick is so alive. This church is so alive. In the first week of September 1991, I ran into Rick by the dumpster behind the church next to our house. I would walk past the dumpster every day to go to the youth house because I was the the youth pastor. You can learn a lot about people by hanging out at at the dumpster. The dumpster smelled, but it was where the action was. Secret meetings of the pastors before the service. It was where the grooms and the groomsmen would, would sneak beer before the weddings. The dumpster, the, the dumpster, dumpsters are often full of stuff that folks don't want you to see. It's where the action is. The dumpster is metaphorical in a way, smells like death, but it can teach you an awful lot about life. Well, as I was saying, the first week of September 1991, I ran into Rick by the dumpster. He used to sit back there 
in his car. He had been gone on sabbatical for three months and he had just come back and he had called like an emergency staff meeting. I had heard some rumors, so I went up to his window and I said, Rick, is everything, is everything okay? He rolled down his window. He said, yeah, Peter, I, I'm glad I, I caught you before the meeting. I've decided, decided to, to resign. The stress and, and the busyness has just been too much, and I, I just want to take some time to, to speak and, and, and to write. And, and, and I remember I just blurted out, oh, good! And then I caught myself because I realized how that sounded, and I said, oh, good. I mean, I'm glad that, that, that everything, uh, that, that it's good and that it's, that it's not bad. He kind of laughed and, and he said, oh yeah, like bad, like I got a divorce or something? I said, yeah, he said, oh, it's, it's nothing like that, it's nothing like that. He got out, we walked together, passed the dumpster up to a meeting where he shared the very same story. A few days later, I sat in another meeting with some denominational officials who informed us that four women were suing Rick for using his position to obtain sexual favors at his former church. Shortly after that, we had another meeting with Rick. He confessed. He, he, he wept, promised that there were no more affairs like that in our church, and I remember I journaled about how beautiful his repentance was. Short time later, I was in another meeting and found out that his repentance was really just more lies, for he was still doing the same thing with several women at, at our church, even as he wept in front of us over those women in the past. About then, I was informed that the very same thing had happened at Bel Air Presbyterian Church. In fact, it had been happening the entire time that I was there. It wasn't much after that that I was informed my old friend Tim, one of the best preachers that I've ever heard, silver tongue with an amazing name for being alive. I found out that Tim wrote a note to his big thriving congregation in St. Louis, a note to his family, then went out in the garage, tied a pipe to the back of the car, and asphyxiated himself. Dead. Since then, I've done two funerals for pastor friends who have had a name for being alive and yet they took their own lives, dead. I'm just saying, I'm not all that sure that we are very good at telling dead from alive. Maybe we confuse growth with something just getting bigger, like, like a cancer. Maybe we confuse alive with shiny objects, you know, with lots of bells and whistles, noise and commotion. And yet we see something like this, a little speck in the palm of a, of a gardener, and, and we say, well, that looks dead, that's, that's dead, that's, that's dead. Maybe we're just not all that good at telling Dead from alive. What's alive? What's, what's dead? We look and see lots of excited people, mighty works, demons, flaming. And it smells good. We say, man, look at that. That is an alive church. Then we see a few sad people, their numbers shrinking, no miracles, lots of tears in a place that smells of dirt and demons. And we say, man, this place is depressing. And that guy up there in the middle hanging on the tree He's dead. 
I think he's dead. I think that man on the cross, he's, he's, this, is, this is dead. Just saying, maybe we just don't know dead from alive all that well, as well as we'd think. Sardis, you have the name of being alive, but you're dead. Other folks called them alive. I'm sure that they loved that name alive. Sometimes just the name of being alive can kill you. In other words, a reputation can kill you. Jesus even said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you that have a good reputation. Rick told me later on, Peter, it was the pressure of ministry. I love Rick. We're still friends. I think he's a great guy, but I remember him saying, because I said, what on earth happened? He said, it was the pressure of ministry. I totally get that. But I doubt it was the pressure of the ministry that God had given him. I bet it was the pressure of living up to a name that everyone else was giving him and a name that he was giving himself. It might even have been a name that Jesus gave him, but he couldn't live up to it by trying. The letter to the seven churches has a chiastic Hebrew construction. That means that the last three letters parallel the first three letters. Two weeks ago in Pergamum, we preached that even a good name can kill you. Remember how Peter tried to live up to the name that Jesus gave him? Just about killed him. Maybe, in a way, it, it did. He tried to make himself the rock until finally, like butter, he denied Jesus three times. Then he realized that he couldn't make himself the rock. And then he became the rock. <laughs> on which Jesus built his church. Jesus warned the folks in, in Pergamum, remember, parallel to Sardis, don't let people name you. Don't even let you name you. In other words, don't concern yourself with a reputation. Your true name is handed to you on a white stone that no one knows except him who receives it and, of course, the one who, who gives it. You can't earn it, the name. It comes by grace through faith. So trying to live up to a name can kill you. And trying to make a name for yourself will kill you or already has killed you. You have the name of being alive, says Jesus, but you're dead. You're dead. My old friend Gary, Gary Redder, some of you knew him. He told me once about finding this man in the back hallway of a convention center, curled up in a, in a bowl, weeping, sobbing, and shaking. He was at the convention center to hear a famous pastor with a name for being alive. Uh, so Gary said he walked up to the man, uh, bent down, and the man said, I'm not making it, I'm not making it. And Gary said, you don't have to make it. And the man said, oh, yes, I do. My name is, it was the name of that man a name that you would probably know if you heard it. The man with a name for being alive about to tell everyone else at the convention center how they can be alive too. I have a friend who comes from a family of evangelical Christian royalty, and I really mean this. You can't get more royal than, than this family in evangelicaldom. But living up to his name has been like a curse. He started out in professional ministry, but he would repeatedly act out in really bizarre ways, ways that I just could not 
understand. I mean, they weren't particularly mean, but they were vulgar, and I just couldn't understand. Like, why do you do that? And, 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 and I, I couldn't understand, and I told him so. Well, I was visiting this friend years ago in another state and went with, one of, with him to one of his father's prayer support meetings. At this prayer meeting, we broke into sh sharing groups. Everybody wore blue jeans that had been ironed. And they had sweaters on their backs, you know, with the arms dripped over the, and then tied in a, in a knot in, in the front. And, and they all said things like this, bless you, brother, bless you, sister. I have encountered victory this week. Have you encountered victory? Isn't God good? And praise the Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And the whole time they smiled. My face hurt from smiling by the end of the meeting, pretending that I was happy. Finally, we said a little prayer, because you know it was called a prayer meeting, and then we left. When the two of us were alone, my friend turned to me and he said, so Peter, what did you think? No, I'm not saying this to be cute, but because this is actually what I said, because this is what I actually meant. I said, you know, this is so weird, but the, the, entire, the entire time, I just wanted to fart. <laughs> I remember my friend, he didn't laugh. He looked at me, his eyes drilled into me, and he said, well, now you know. Now you know what it is to be me. I've heard counselors say that pastors have affairs oftentimes just to get out from the pressure of a good name, almost as a way to confess. I'm a whitewashed tomb. I look pretty good on the outside, but I'm, I'm dead on the inside and smell like a barn. I'm talking like pastors because I am one. But the same is true for business executives, teachers, moms, dads, church attenders, anybody with a public life who desires a good public name. Presidents, congressmen, Movie executives. You've made a name for yourself and you're working to live up to the name, but inside you're empty, tired, lonely, desperate. You want someone, anyone to know you, but you think to yourself, what if they really knew me? So, so, you, so you work harder and harder to hide the stink. What if all your good works were like soiled garments soiled because you use the garments to hide the stink like like Isaiah says all our righteous deeds are like soiled garments filthy filthy rags maybe the evil one is committing extortion saying to you pay work struggle strive for your name for if they discovered that's not your name you drop you die you die so you, so you strive to live up to your to your name but deep inside you long for the dumpster the sewer, the, bo the, 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 the bottle, the, the porn, the, the gossip, the, the flesh. The power of sin. Do you remember what the power of sin is? <laughs> the law. 1 Corinthians 15. The power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the knowledge of good and the desire to make yourself good. Satan's temptation is to make a name for yourself. 
So Satan's extortion is powerless without an addiction to a good public name, which produces a desperate need within you to hide your shame and fig leaves and, and pride. You hide from the truth in lies that you call yourself, in a soiled garment that you call yourself. The, the Lord said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You will hide from the truth. Who is the life? Who is me? You will hide from the truth in a prison called yourself. Uh, a whitewashed tomb. Looks nice. Smells like a dumpster. Soren Kierkegaard, the famous philosopher and theologian, wrote this. If someone in public happens to pass gas loudly, people are so startled, it is as if it were the voice of a spirit. <laughs> So intoxicated are we when we are in public. Well, maybe it is a spirit. Maybe it's the spirit. Maybe it's the spirit of truth. And he's saying, it's dead in here. And I want out of this place. <laughs> it stinks in here like a barn or a manger. I know that's gross. That's gross. But Christ is born in a barn, placed in a manger, Smells like a dumpster. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation. You have a name of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works, your deeds, complete or perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received, what you heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come, come upon you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed this way in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father, before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the message seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Wake up! For I've not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Jesus calls us to perfection. Are your works perfect? Perfect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-control. Do people look at you and say, wow, that's a, that's a life, that's a life. When was the last time you danced before the Lord in absolute abandoned freedom and joy? When was the last person that you led, uh, last time you led another person to the living Christ? When was the last time someone stopped you on the street and said, why are you so happy? You look so alive. You look so alive. So look alive! Like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or Benny Hinn or Jesus. Do you want garments white as snow? Do you want your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Then live! 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 Or am I just screaming at dead things? Now, do you feel more alive? Or do you feel more dead, <laughs> imprisoned to the name of being alive? A lot of yelling on the outside, a lot of dead on the inside. 
The more ice cream live, the more you are reminded of how dead you are. And the more you're reminded of how dead you are, the more self-conscious you get. And the more self-conscious you get, the more dead you get. For Jesus is very clear. Lose your life, your soul, yourself, and you'll find it. That means stop thinking about yourself. Are you thinking about yourself? Are you thinking about yourself, not thinking about yourself, which is only more thinking about yourself? Which is a trap. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the power of sin is the law. You see, we take law and it makes us dead. We take knowledge of the good to make ourselves good and it makes us not good. We take knowledge of life and it makes us dead. And worse still, dead doesn't know dead because it's dead. It's like the creepy kid in the movie The Sixth Sense talking to his counselor. Remember, he said, I see dead people. They're everywhere. They don't know they're dead. They only see what they want to see. They don't want to see the truth. And Jesus is the truth. You know, we often wonder what's wrong with this world. I hope you wonder that. Maybe you also wonder what's wrong with me. Perhaps you're dead. I mean, that would explain a lot. You're dead and, and, and you don't know you're dead. That, that would explain a lot. But screaming at you wouldn't do any good. Why? Because you're dead. You ever screamed at a dead cat in your driveway? Stop it! You smell! Doesn't do any good. Still dead. If you're dead, you can't conquer. Dead things don't conquer. Each letter to the seven churches ends with this phrase, to him who conquers, I will give, I will do such and such. So I read and I wonder, I wonder, oh crap, will I conquer? Will I revive that love I had at first for Jesus? Will I be faithful unto death? Will I renounce false teaching? Will I, uh, will I tolerate that Jezebel woman and her porneia? Will I wake up and live? Will my name be blotted out of the book of life? Will I conquer? could scare you to death. If you're not already dead. Like St. Paul writes in Romans. Listen closely. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came to life, and I died. I died. The very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death to me. Well, these seven letters sound an awful lot like the law, right? And law brings death. Do this, uh, do this or die. Conquer or, or die. And it's especially weird considering that this is written by, by John. When we preached through the Gospel of John a few years ago, over and over, you remember how we were just impressed with this fact that Jesus does everything. He calls people, he chooses people, he sanctifies people, he saves people, he lives his life through people. John 5, 21, Jesus says this, whoever does what is true comes to the light which he just said is the judgment, comes to the light so that it may clearly be seen that his deeds, his works, have been done by God. <laughs> but here in these letters, it sounds like he's saying, 
Do these deeds or God will be done with you. He'll blot you out of the book, the book of life. Well, what is Jesus saying to us? Well, technically, he's not talking to us. We are overhearing him talk to someone else. The way John overheard Jesus talk to his father, uh, Jesus' father, the father in the Garden of Gethsemane, John is writing down what Jesus is saying to someone else. Each letter is addressed to an angel. And it ends with this phrase, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to, to the churches. Most of the pronouns in the letter are, in the, are second person singular pronouns, and so they get lost in translation, but Jesus is talking to the angel. So when he says, I have not found your works perfect, he's talking to the angel. Now, that is really weird. For number one, in Scripture, angels are good or bad, but this angel gets rebuked for the bad and commended for the good. That's utterly bizarre. And not only that, in the rest of the New Testament, it teaches that we don't need some weird angel mediating our relationship with God. There's only one mediator, and that's Jesus. And so secondly, some have postulated, well, the angel must be a bishop or, or a prophet, you know, like a pastor or some person in the local church because angelos, angel, also means messenger. But that puts a whole lot of ungodly pressure on seven guys. Pressure to save the churches, and there's only one Savior, and that's Jesus. Uh, neither angel nor, nor man works. So, so some, number three, see it as just this unprecedented, bizarre literary device, literary device. Yeah, Jesus seems to make a very big deal out of these seven angels that he holds tightly in his strong right hand. Seven angels, messengers, angelos, seven, yet one. Seven is the number of God's manifold fullness. In chapter five, we'll read that the, that the lamb has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven spirits, yet we know that's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus. Revelation 1.20, we read that the seven angels are the seven stars. We just read in 3.30 the words of Jesus who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Some commentators say that and is epexegetical. That means that the verse should be translated this, this way. The words of him who has the seven spirits, that is the seven stars, which then would clearly mean what the, what the revelation seems to mean, that the seven eyes of the Lamb that are the seven spirits of God are also the seven stars, and the seven stars are the seven angels, which means that each angel in each church is Christ's spirit in each church, so Jesus is talking to his own spirit. The Holy Spirit, resident in his very own body, his church. So of course he knows their works. And of course Jesus says to his spirit, in a way that the church can overhear, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the spirit says to the churches. The spirit is called the parakletos, the advocate, the helper. He's the light in each lampstand. Now, it seems so obvious. And yet I haven't read any commentator that says this. And as I've reflected on it, I, I, I realized why because this is what it means. It means that Jesus is like blaming his own spirit 
for our sins, for losing our first love, for tolerating Jezebel's pornea, for being dead. It would mean that Jesus is like not imputing our sins against us, <laughs> but against himself. It would mean that Jesus had died, or at least his spirit had died, and is he's now calling to himself in us to rise from the dead and live. It would mean that he is charging his own spirit with the work of our own righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, our salvation and creation. It would be a grace almost too incredible to believe. In fact, we need divine help in order to believe it. Like, faith itself would be a gift. And yet this is just what Scripture asks us to believe, right? 2 Corinthians 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. So if he wasn't imputing our trespasses to them, and God, God doesn't like doctor the books, I mean, he must be imputing them somewhere. Where is he imputing them? For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God was in Christ doing this. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're all doing this for us. First John, John says this, if anyone does sin, and he does tell us that we all sin, he's already said that, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a helper. Oh, remember that Adam couldn't find his helper? And scripture says that our helper is God. We have an advocate, a helper with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Jesus gives us his spirit, who is called the advocate, the parakletos. You know what that means? One who pleads another's case before a judge. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, I'm sending another advocate, a parakletos. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Then he tells the disciples, the advocate, the helper, the spirit of truth, will teach you all things. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So in other words, he takes direction from Jesus and he speaks it to us somehow. He will declare to you the things that are to come. That should sound familiar. And he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the letter goes to the angel in the church. A church is a sanctuary made of people filled with God's spirit, the spirit of Jesus. And Jesus says, you're dead. You is singular, not plural, which means he's talking to this angel, which must be his spirit, his Holy Spirit. He says, you're dead. And now that raises a fascinating question that I hope has occurred to you. I've wrestled with this for years. But if Jesus is the life, and the book of Hebrews calls him an indestructible life, if Jesus is the life, how can he die? Or his spirit die? Maybe he can't die unless he dies in us. And maybe death isn't the absence of life, so much as the separation of life from life. Like if I cut off my finger, part of my body, and laid it on a, on a table. 
You know, the breath of God that is the spirit of God and the spirit of truth and the spirit of life, that spirit was in Adam when Adam believed the lie and so cut himself off from the truth and the life and covered himself in fig leaves and was exiled from the garden. I mean, maybe the breath of God, spirit of God and spirit of Jesus lies in the dark soil of each and every human heart like a seed which at some point was taken from the tree of life and buried in the ground that is you until Jesus calls to his own spirit saying, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and I will give you light. I don't know. But I do know that each of us is like an earthen vessel in which God plants a seed which is faith, and that our earthen vessel must crack and eventually be discarded for the seed to grow and reach the light. The earthen vessel is your flesh. You've grown that flesh based on a lie that you must make yourself in the image of God, that you must make a name for yourself, and so you've made a false self. A, a, a false self in which your true self is imprisoned like a seed. So anyway, maybe death is separation. So to say Christ died is to say Christ was separated from Christ. As if a drop of life was separated from the river of life and placed in you. As if a crumb of truth was broken from the body of truth and planted in you. Just like body broken and blood shed is planted in you at the table of the Lord. So your true self is like a bit of Christ self planted in the earthen soil that you think of as you. So maybe, maybe the spirit on the throne calls to the spirit in you saying, live, live. Live. And that spirit in you can hear the spirit on the throne and rise from the dead like a seed that grows. It breaks through the ground in which it is encased or a, a savior that bursts from a tomb that used to be your own soul. I don't know how to describe it. But according to scripture, we die with him and he rises in us crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. That is communion with God. So perhaps death is separation, and the death of death, the second death, is communion. The end of separation. Well, anyway, yeah, in these letters, I think we're hearing Jesus calling to his own spirit buried in our faithlessness, shame, isolation, separation, and fear. He calls, live, 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 until it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who gave himself up for me. It means that you are like a field being prepared for harvest, where you are like a womb that's being prepared to give birth. Uh, you are like a patient on an operating table overhearing the great physician talk to himself about your surgery. If that's the case, what should you do? Hold still. 
Don't squirm off the table. Hold still and surrender. Surrender what? Surrender yourself, your false self, your, your ego. Surrender whatever is dirty or, or rotten, especially any infection or sin. Surrender, hold still, and see the salvation of our God. It's a revelation. But then you see the conquering depends upon the physician. So will the physician conquer? Will Jesus conquer? Will the advocate conquer? That's what the rest of the book is about. It's the revelation of Jesus. But, but, will, but, 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 but will, will your name be blotted from the book of life? <laughs> I suppose that depends on your name. In Exodus 32, this is such an incredible chapter. Moses argues with God. He tries to atone for the people of Israel after they make the golden calf. And he says this to God. If you won't forgive their sins, blot me out of your book. And do you remember what God says? Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Period. Ah! What does that mean? That means that the only name that has not been blotted out of his book is he who knew no sin, but became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. In Revelation 20, we'll read about the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment because John believes that there's only one judgment. In Revelation 20, the dead, the dead stand before the throne. The dead are judged by what is written in the books according to the deeds that they have done. The deeds that they have done. The books are like a resume. I think they're a record of our attempt to make a name for ourselves, our attempt to justify ourselves according to the law and the power of our own flesh. The books are opened and another book is opened, which is the Lamb's Book of Life. It contains names, names that have not been earned with deeds done in the power of the flesh, but names that have been given by grace through the blood of the Lamb. In verse 3, Jesus said this to the angel in Sardis, Remember what you have received. Keep it. If folks had received the name alive from Jesus because he had given it to them, if they had received the name by grace through faith, and this not of themselves, if they were grateful to God for the name, then they should keep it. Because that's a name that's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But if they receive the name alive from themselves or from their neighbors because, I don't know, they sang loud at church and attended every Bible study and acted bubbly wherever they went, or even if they cast out demons and cured the sick in the name of Jesus, if the name was a reputation that they thought they had earned with deeds that they had done, if, if they were proud of the name, oh, then they better drop to their knees and beg Jesus to cut that name out of their flesh with his flaming sword, or else they'll be thrown into the fire with it. Revelation 20, 14. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and death shall be no more. The lake of the fire, the lake of fire is is the death of death. And death is separation. The end of death is a sea of life. 
And life is communion. The end of darkness is a sea of of light. The end of the false is what? It's a sea of truth. The end of pride is what? A sea of burning hot humility. The end of sin is a sea of grace. The end of the thing that you used to refer to as yourself is God's self. The end of hell is communion with God. Revelation 20, 14, this is the second death. Verse 15, anyone's name not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And anyone not thrown into the lake of fire had what? He had already been baptized in fire. Like the disciples were baptized at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is fire. And that, my friends, is the judgment. Now, I I think the Lamb has written the name of every person he created in his book. All things are the Father's. He gives all things to the Son and dies for the sins of the world. So I, I think, and this is what the revelation will reveal, I think, I think the Lamb has written the name of every person he created in his book, but not the name of the person he didn't create. That person that you think you create. You have an old self, an old man, a false self, and he is not found in the Lamb's book of life. And you have a new self, a true self, in communion with Christ's self. His name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's written in blood. That's the judgment. Anytime you confess your sins and receive God's grace, you have surrendered to God's judgment. You have put off the old self and begun to live in the new self. You have died and begun to live. You have faith by grace and this not of yourself. You have the victory that has conquered the world. 1 John 5. This is the victory that conquers the world. Our faith. You have renounced the name that you have made for yourself and begun to receive the name that God has given you. You you have stripped off your soiled garments and washed them. Washed them how? In the blood of the Lamb and allowed Him to dress you in His righteousness which is Himself. Verse 3, Jesus said, remember and repent or I'll come like a thief. Remember, he, he may come like a thief, but he's not a thief. And you won't think he's a thief if you've already surrendered yourself and all you are to him. You'll hear, wake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and I will give you light. And surrendering to him will not be terror, but delight. In fact, it's in the place of surrendered shame that the seed is planted. It's in that stinky barn that the Christ child is born. And that's the judgment. Let him who has ears to hear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis, stop trying to make a name for yourself. Sardis, surrender the garbage. Just surrender it, and the life will be born in your stable, and I will give you a new name. It's my name. Shortly after my encounter with Rick behind the church by the dumpster, I went for a walk with this old man. He was a pastor. His last 10 years had been really hard. He'd never published a book, never pastored a church with much of a name. In fact, he'd lost two churches and much of his reputation. 
Yet I'd have to say that it was in him, more than anyone else I've ever known, that I had encountered love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, self-control, and encountered them in places that would make most people lose control. You know, I had encountered life in places full of dirt, darkness, and maybe even demons, life. I don't mean he was perfect, but that those things were real and not just a name. He took me for a walk, and I remember we sat down by the dumpster on the steps behind the church, and he said something like this, Peter, I just want to tell you that I just haven't been very on fire lately, alive. You know, I feel like I've just been dead. And then he said, I want to recommit my life to Jesus. And I'm asking you to pray for me. And so I did. Feeling terribly unqualified, unworthy to do so, I I did. I prayed for my dad. The spirit in me called to the spirit in him, live, live live, because the Spirit in him had been calling to the Spirit in me for 30 years, live, live, live. I think that's the only reason that I could call to him, live, 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 and he he did, and he does. My dad died 13 years ago, and yet he's the only person I've known that I am convinced is truly alive. I'm saying that not for like theological, philosophical reasons, but for like existential, experiential reasons. He, he died, and at least four people that I know encountered him alive. One he told to have hope. One he liberated from a bondage. One he told to come and give me a big hug. And lastly, he told my wife, he appeared in front of her in church and said, Susan and Peter, do not be afraid to drink from the cup that the Lord has for you. And remember Susan, tell me about it. She said, oh, Peter, I wish you could have seen him because he just looked so alive. I've known a lot of pastors with the name of being alive who were awfully dead. My dad didn't have much of a name and confessed to feeling dead, and I know he's alive. Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead. Once upon a time, Jesus had a reputation for being dead, but he's alive. He is the life. That's his name, and he gives it to you. You cannot earn it. He must give it, and you must receive it. That's the judgment. This is the judgment. He took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood. For thousands of years, God had been telling the Israelites, the life is in the blood. And Jesus said, drink of it all of you. So would you pray, would you pray with me and just try to make my words your words, okay? And so God, I can pray this and I pray other people would join with me and that is that, golly, I confess 
to trying to make a name for myself. The name of being alive. And then I realize I'm dead. I confess that in and of myself, I'm dead. So I surrender the dead to you, the life. Thank you that you have given yourself to me and you are giving me a new name, your name. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. If you're proud of your name, and by that I mean you think that you earned your name, listen to the judgment of God. It's not your name. That's not your name. But if you're grateful for your name, if you're grateful to God for your name, that is your name. And it's Jesus' name. And that is the judgment of God. Amen. And so, Lord God, we thank you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And Lord God, I thank you that what you will is called reality and that the word with which you will it is called Jesus. And that word will not return void but will accomplish that for which it was sent. Thank you, Lord God, that you will make us in your own image and your own likeness. And we will love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we will love our neighbor as ourselves. We will be home. Thank you, Lord God, for who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, everybody likes practical application points, so there's a very simple practical application point today, all right? And that is, confess your sins one to another. That's what Scripture says. So I confess my sins to Susan first and foremost. Also, Andrew, who I've, is kind of like my brother, and then my small group that I've been a part of for a long time. You need to have someone that you confess your sins to, not just anybody. When Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine, I think that's what he was talking about. But you need to have someone you confess your sins to, and then that person is a priest. So if you confess your sins down front here to Sasha or to Rich, their job at that point is not to do this. You loser, what the hell were you thinking? You better get your act together. You better try harder. In other words, God is not calling you to an accountability group. Because what is that? That's the law. And the more they say what's wrong with you, you better get it together. The more you think about yourself, the more you get stuck in yourself. What is their, what is their duty at that point? It's to proclaim the gospel. And that is this. My dear, that is no longer your name. It's been nailed to Jesus and born to destruction, and he gives you a new name. It's your true name. Now, yeah, you may have to deal with county officials and the police, and you may not be allowed to babysit again, but <laughs> that's not your name. That's called the gospel. And Jesus rises in you 
and gives you life. It's the Word of God that descends in you and makes you a new creation. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.